0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Mary Weibel about her book, The Politics of Disease Control, Sleeping Sickness in Eastern Africa, 1890 to 1920, published by Ohio University Press in 2019. Dr. Weibel is an assistant professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Webel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be with you. Um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you became interested in history and African history. Sure. Um, So I am originally from Southern
1: Illinois, from Carbondale, Illinois. And um, my interest in history is, uh, it goes back quite far, I think, um, in terms of how I ended up where I am today. And the interest in African history came along a little bit later. Um, so I started off as an undergraduate um, in, a, in a history core curriculum, um, which my university offered at the time, in part because I had had a really dynamic and really amazing high school history teacher um, who taught Howard Zinn's uh, People's History of the United States alongside a conventional textbook and had us involved in research as, as high school students. And so it had always been really interesting and really fun for me to to think about um, historical problems and narratives and so forth, even though I might not have recognized that I was doing that at the time. And um, I started off uh, as an undergraduate being really interested in history, in part because I loved to write and I was really interested in research, and um, that came about really organically in a way that was that was wonderful. But at the time, I thought I was going to be a marine biologist. So, uh, so I didn't really have any plans to end up as a history researcher in the long run, um, which is I think what happens a lot of the time. And and it it just settled in for me that um, that studying history was something that I that I was good at, and I was interested in uh, pursuing museum studies and public history work at the time. And so that was something I focused on over the course of of being an undergraduate. I took uh, an, one African history course as an undergraduate with Richard Roberts at Stanford University. And that piqued my interest um, alongside other, uh, other courses in American history um, in thinking about race and racism in history and thinking about sort of how we ended up where we are um, in the late 20th, early 21st century. And I got really interested in the 19th century as a, as a result of all of that. Um, One of the things that was uh, a little bit of a surprising turn, um, all things considered, um, was that I I pursued a master's degree, again, with the intention of going into public history or museums work um, and studied at the University of York in the UK, which had really great public history courses, but also a really robust cultural history program. And it was there that I got this this sort of immersion in in cultural history and theory alongside going to these really wonderful museum spaces and thinking about public history with with mentors there. And it was in the course of looking for uh, a topic for one of our longer papers that I started talking about this interest I had had as an undergraduate in sort of how and why... The, the 19th century U.S. was what it was, <laughs> but also um, something that had come through my courses, which was to, to see how health and illness and ways of talking about disease and ways of talking about cleanliness and sanitation and sexuality were, um, were often a way that ideas about racial difference and cultural difference um, were deployed by, by people in power. And that was something that was really compelling for me, um, particularly being from Southern Illinois, which is a place that has a, a really vexed history of um, racism and um, and segregation in its in its different ways. So uh, a tutor at the University of York, suggested that I look into some of the work that was going on in one of the welcome units um, for the history of medicine. And I connected that suggestion to look at the history of medicine and health with a topic I had written about for Richard Roberts in this course as an undergraduate and came up with a project on the history of segregation as malaria prevention policy in Sierra Leone. Um, and it was that was my first foray into stitching together Um, African history with this interest in the history of health and the history of of medicine and research in a really explicit way. From there, um, it was uh, was not quite off to the races. I actually finished that master's essay, which was really, really uh, a rich experience in studying the history of malaria. But then I returned to the States um, and started working in the National Archives Center for Legislative Archives um, doing the American history work that I had been doing for the most of, of my academic career. And it wasn't until West Nile virus uh, arrived with great anxiety and fanfare in Washington, D.C. in the early 2000s two, two that um, that I started to think that maybe it would make sense to pursue my research more formally in the long run. Um, I had no intention of of going to to study history formally or becoming a professor. I was, I was very steeped in that world in D.C. But I was really struck by the way that newspapers were covering West Nile and mosquito control and mosquito prevention in a way that really harked back to the way that um, the rhetoric around malaria had been um, 100 years before. And that's, that really planted the seeds for thinking about the longer arc of the history of um, tropical medicine and thinking about the longer um, implications, longer term implications of imperial thinking, um, of thinking about um, colonized spaces for understandings of health and disease and disease transmission, even in, in the, the present day. So that settled me much more firmly as someone who was interested in African history with this abiding interest in the history of medicine and health, and that ultimately took me to graduate school at Columbia University, where I studied with um, uh, Marsha Wright, eminent Africanist Marsha Wright, as well as Nancy Lee Steppen, a historian of medicine and health, um, as well as uh, many, many other uh, faculty in a variety of different fields, including Greg Mann, who sort of shepherded me through this project.
0: Mm. Excellent. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the project in particular. Uh, I mean, as we all know, you know, we start with a set of ideas of where you mm-hmm. want to go, and and then things start to either narrow down or sort of go out of control, <laughs> depending <laughs> yeah. on how the sources and yeah. things happen. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you came to write uh, The yeah. Politics of Disease Control.
1: So this was a, a really interesting it's an mo- interesting moment for me to reflect on. So, um, so I was I was in graduate school with the intention to look at the history of tropical medicine and understand inter imperial um, connections. So I was I had German as a foreign language um, coming into graduate school, and so I was interested in looking at how German and French and British and other scientists had interacted prior to the First World War around these big imperial problems. But I was also really interested in thinking about why and how different approaches to disease and health and healing had played out in, in different spaces. And I, and I got very interested in Eastern Africa um, as a result of that, in part because I, I had this research language that I thought I would be able to look at some primary sources with for your graduate school research papers. But I also um, was just very interested in, in understanding dynamics in, in late 19th and early 20th century um, Eastern Africa. So I was looking through uh, the collected works of Robert Koch, who is one of the most famous uh, scientists that we have in in the modern era. I think, and you can talk to uh, medical medical students and biology students who who are who learn Koch's postulates and and know his his work sort of from popular history. And there was a, a translation of some of his work, but then most of the work was in the original German. And I was paging through the collected works of, of Robert Koch looking for something about malaria, because I wanted to pick something up from that master's essay. And I happened upon this crazy photograph that I still look at every once in a while and think this is where it started. (laughs) Um, but so it was a, it was a black and white photograph of, um, an older man with a beard in, in a pith helmet, really the sort of imperial caricature in a pith helmet with, um, with another white man standing next to him kind of crouching next to him in a little kind of military cap and they were standing over a, an enormous dead crocodile just this huge beast <laughs> um, and uh, and they were clearly in the middle of some sort of field dissection and in the in the background of the picture were sort of reedy vegetation off to the sides but then directly behind the crocodile were three other men um three african men who were wearing a sort of traditional swahili coastal garb uh, the long kanzu they looked younger than the other two people and they were sort of observing but also sort of posed in the background and that brought up some really interesting questions for me uh first of all robert koch what are you doing as a bearded el- elderly man doing a field dissection with a crocodile in Eastern Africa in 1906. What was going on with that? But then also, who were these other people? Their names weren't given in the caption. But but when I read the report, you could see the presence of these assistants and auxiliaries who were really interwoven into the processes of knowledge production about um, sleeping sickness. And that was why Koch was doing what he was doing. He was pursuing a later career interest in tropical medicine and this sort of passion for the trypanosome. And and that really got me started in, in digging on this project. Um, so I became interested in this moment of uh, sort of explosion of research around um, sleeping sickness or what became known as human African trypanosomiasis in the early 20th century. Um, and the the attention to sleeping sickness in response to these explosive epidemics that were recognized by Europeans for the first time um, after around 1901 in the Congo Basin and in the Lake Victoria Basin um, and elsewhere, and um, and so that got me to working on sleeping sickness and on trypanosomiasis as a way into these um, these histories of power and research and healing and that was the the initial genesis of the book on the focus on sleeping sickness sort of how it came to be what it is uh was another was another story too <laughs>
0: <laughs> well feel free to tell us uh, but uh also i think it might be it's also interesting if you if um if it if at all it has something to do with this, mm-hmm. but I mean, something that, that was very interesting for me to, when I was reading the book is that I think most African history teachers will know that, uh, you know, we talk about malaria a lot, you know, mm-hmm. in the context of, of disease in Africa, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and we do talk about uh, sleeping sickness and it's almost like in passing. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that was really striking when I when I found your book and what was very exciting to me when I found your book is just how big a deal it was and how we don't tend to make the the history books don't tend to make as big a deal of it as it clearly was. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if, if part of your uh, focus in it, and to some extent you, you talk a little bit about this in, in, in the introduction, but I think it sort of confirms my suspicion that there's not a tremendous historiography on this topic. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what's the historiographical scene uh, mm-hmm. and what were you trying to speak to in, in that historiographical conversation?
1: Absolutely. Um, so, Sleeping sickness is, is a really interesting um, phenomenon to study historically. But it, one of the things that's important and that is an abiding concern is that it's not a problem that is gone in the present day. Um, and, and indeed, I think there is some potential work to be done, and maybe this will come up as we, as we go forward in, in sort of how much sleeping sickness is discussed in the present day um, relative to who is affected by it, um, which, is, which is part of my, my ongoing research. But the, um, one of the things that's fascinating about, about sleeping sickness is something I think that you, you rightly grabbed onto, which is that at the time in the early 20th century, it is difficult to overstate how pressing it was as an imperial concern and how panicked colonial administrations and imperial scientists were about the implications of this parasitic disease for the future of African colonies in the fly belt. Um, One of the things that was also in the back of of some of these scientists' minds was whether sleeping sickness could be spread to other continents. It was understood that it was only um, in Africa in the early 20th century, but the British always had an eye to the Indian Ocean and the expansion to India. So the, the anxieties were very, very high. And part of the reason they were high is because this was coming at the, the latter part of a period where the pathogens were the causative agents for a lot of different diseases were being firmly identified in the laboratory for the first time. And sleeping sickness in the early 20th century was the next big thing in tropical medicine. So in 1898, 97, 98, the mosquito malaria Um, transmission chain was, was elaborated. The causative pathogen for malaria was identified. That was a major uh, moment in, in tropical medicine at the time and in, in knowledge about disease, but, um, but trypanosomiasis came up next. So, um, so one of the reasons that this was so, was so striking in part was that you had these epidemics that were from a European perspective, completely novel and completely unknown. Now that clues us into one of the problems of the historical materials that we have here because we know um, that trypanosomiasis had a deep history and a long history in both human and animal populations in Africa. And so when we talk about these early epidemics, we're, we're really looking at a moment where something was changing, but it's difficult to know exactly what the baseline prior to that was because of the nature of descriptions and discussions of disease. But something was changing in the early 20th century. Um, as others have argued, um, that it had to do with uh, imperial economic imperatives, um, social disruption pushing people into environments where they had not been living before, where they were exposed to tzitzi fly, um, and so forth. So, um, so the, the the kind of passing reference to sleeping sickness in most modern literature is puzzling because it it is an important it's an important disease to contend with for Africanists and for specialists in Africa because it's singular to the continent, and, um, and it is persistent to the present day, among many other maladies. There's also a really interesting and, and pretty, I think, pretty rich historiography, although, um, although situated really in this sort of slice of African history that is very interested in health and healing and medicine, so one of the seminal works is uh, Marianne S. Lyon's uh, book on the Belgian Congo and on, um, and on Belgian interventions. Um, other scholars of, of Congo have picked this up over time. So Nancy Rose Hunt talks about it in Colonial Lexicon um, and others subsequently. And so there's a, there's a vein of research that is really interested in understanding sleeping sickness prevention and, um, and colonial rule. Kirk copy has a, a wonderful book on Uganda and looking at Uganda, um, and there are sort of studies that have been really focused on how individual regimes, colonial regimes, engaged with this problem of sleeping sickness and also of the of the tsetse fly. Claperton Mavunga has a has a great book about the tsetse fly. So so there's there are these sort of national histories that look at national or sort of pre-national colonial histories and the, the way that people at, in, those, in those spaces and at those times engaged with sleeping sickness as a problem. And it was generally understood to be an economic problem and a problem of labor, because if you got it, you died, mm-hmm. right? So this isn't a disease that you recover from, by and large. Um, it's a, it's a fatal disease. There's one variant of it that it sort of presents more chronically and can kill people over a series of months or years. There's another, um, an, another variant that um, can kill people very, very quickly. And so the, the important thing in terms of the historiographies of sleeping sickness is that we've really tried to understand how sleeping sickness control measures, Fit into colonial rule and um, and the the elaboration of colonial public health systems. Um, so that's sort of one piece of it. There's another piece um, that looks at how these epidemics arose in the first place, and tries to connect and successfully, I think you could argue, connects um, changes in uh, in density of cattle and density of farming. Um, where people are living and working prior to the advent of colonial incursion and colonial rule and then during um, colonial rule and understands the different transitions um, that were brought about as part of colonization um, and how those exacerbated the spread of sleeping sickness. Wow.
0: Um, Sorry, did I no, no, no. Go ahead. I was, yeah, go ahead. There's a, there's a follow up. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, no, I mean, I, I was just gonna, you know, sort of Yeah. having, having said that, mm-hmm. ha- having had that, uh, sort of set of conversations, mm-hmm. uh, clarified, um, yeah, I mean, we can you you can finish um, detailing that, uh, and once you're done, if you want to, you can tell us a little bit more about <laughs> the cases that you chose, yeah, you know, yeah, and sure. how these cases uh, you felt that these cases could speak or enrich those yeah. conversations.
1: Yeah, um, the thing that I that I I've, I'm working from notes, and so just glanced down. And in terms of the intervention that I was trying to do in in, in this different literature, um, or thinking about how I fit into the historiography um and i think um one of the key things that is significant in these broader histories of sleeping sickness um is that there was there was really important fundamental work done to establish the relationship between um colonial incursion and colonial economic imperatives in the spread of sleeping sickness and um and really wonderful work that has also connected sleeping sickness as a way that um different uh, colonial administrations, but also different populations, um, sort of engaged with their environment in different ways, engaged with medical research in different ways. Um, Guillaume Lachanel has a has a wonderful new book out about um, French French Equatorial Africa and and these mass drug campaigns. But most of what we had talked about, in large part, um, generally focuses on um, the period where there were biomedical treatments developed or public health approaches that, were, um, that had been sort of delineated that were controlling this disease in a particular way. So when sleeping sickness is, un- is known to be caused by a parasite and known to be spread by the tsetse fly after sort of 1902, but the fly stuff takes a little bit longer, then you have these really, um, really ambitious and draconian public health initiatives that kick into gear but i was really interested in what happens in that time period where things aren't as certain right and and if this is an illness that is emerging in people's lives as a cause of sleepiness and as a cause of death if it seems to be operating at a new scale people are talking about that people are trying to make sense of it and and the people who are affected by by sleeping sickness were African populations. There were a scattered few Europeans who end up getting sick with it or dying of it. But we are looking at African mortality by and large. And I was really interested in understanding how people made sense of what was going on in their world. And, um, and I realized that as we talk about sleeping sickness, it's, it's posited as this, when it is discussed, it's posited as this, this really significant rupture. So both the disease and responses to it are this really significant rupture in African history and African lives. But, um, but there had to be continuities reaching backward and reaching forward um, in terms of, of how people managed this crisis, managed illness and misfortune, however they understood it and i also was was very clear too from the material that i was looking at in the archives that even though these colonial public health campaigns were very ambitious and were trying to do were trying to alter every aspect of people's lives they were also full of holes <laughs> they were not perfect. They were they people were negotiating with them and evading them and using the, the campaigns in these public health spaces in entrepreneurial ways. They were sometimes trapped by them and sometimes died in them, but sometimes came to work in them and there were opportunities for for social mobility as colonial auxiliaries, sort of coming back to those three men in the background of that picture with Robert Koch. And that was a story that I thought was really important to tell because it got at this moment of transition both in ways of understanding illness and ways of thinking about causes of disease, but also in, in how to address what was happening within a community. And, and that was the, that was the the space that I really wanted to fit into in that rich literature of sleeping sickness work and the history of sleeping sickness was to think about what it was like when things were not so certain and what can we learn about Um, about African intellectual worlds, ways of of ameliorating misfortune, ways of healing, um, ways of ensuring prosperity, um, particularly within the Great Lakes kingdoms, by understanding this moment of transition, as a moment of transition, but as a moment of connection over
0: time. Excellent. Um, So, to speak a little bit about this moment as a preamble um, to the specific uh, case studies, I, I wonder if you could just, for the listeners, very quickly let us know—or not as quickly as you need to feel <laughs> um, Just, just give us a sense of that transitional moment. You know, what is the colonial setup a, a, at this mm-hmm. particular moment that you're looking into?
1: Sure. So, um, so specifically focusing on um, on the Great Lakes region and on the the lake shores of Lake. Victorian Lake Tanganyika. So that was the, that was the space that I was interested in. And I was interested in circulation around and across the lakes. Uh So in the, in the early 20th century, in 1901, 1900, 1901, um, when for these first reports of uh, a sleepy disease, a disease where people are, are weakened, and wasting and falling into sort of coma or have these disrupted sleep patterns where they're awake or manic at some times and sleeping at others and then die. So the reports of this disease start to come um, out at Lake Victoria in night, right in 1901. Um, there's circulation of the disease of reports of the disease in, in the Belgian Congo um, as well at the time, what was then still the Congo free state. So what is happening in Eastern Africa is that the Uganda protectorate is very, very young. Um, so the British have, uh, have made more deliberate moves to claim territorial control of the, this, the northern uh, littoral of Lake Victoria and are expanding through war and negotiation um, into what is now modern Uganda um, likewise, uh, the railroad has been built from Mombasa through to Nairobi and gets to Lake Victoria right at around the same time. And at the same time, the German administration, uh, although historians debate on how enthusiastically and how reluctantly, um, the German administration is also expanding uh, expanding westward from its base on the coast coast. At Bagamoyo and Dar es Salaam um, and elsewhere, expanding westward to get to the Great Lakes region to um, to claim territorial control of, of Lake Tanganyika and its lakeshore. This is sort of post-Berlin Conference, um, post uh, post formalization of most colonial borders, but still at a point where um, the European colonial presence in the interior of Eastern Africa. Was was mostly a military presence. Was sort of limited outposts, very few civilian personnel, um, and those that were there were, I, I think, really precarious. Um, certainly in, in eastern Africa and German East Africa at the time, um, as well as the um, the eastern Belgian Congo. A little less so in Uganda because there was a there was a historic missionary presence, French Catholic and and Protestant. Anglican missionaries were there and, and a, a sort of more bustling town in Kampala and Uganda at the time. So that setup was one um, where the transition to civilian rule was happening, sort of from the 1890s to the early 1900s, which meant that uh, officially this era of conquest in the, in the, from the perspective of European actors was, was sort of drawing to a close the pacification quote, pacification processes that happened. Um, and so that meant that in some ways the European administrations are sort of settling down to the business of, of ruling through civilian apparatuses in this space. And he, then here comes this epidemic. So one of the things that's really central in the, in this moment is that, um, The production of knowledge about African populations by European actors happens in the course of these public health investigations or of these medical investigations and public health campaigns. So, one of the things that is is in the book a little bit, but that was really striking in the long arc of things was that starting off um, when you have people going out to European doctors, uh, colonial officers, trying to go out and figure out who's sick and how sick they are and what they're sick with. They can't even find anybody because everyone just runs away they just they just leave their homes temporarily and these these European doctors have very scant knowledge of local languages. they don't know where they are. Um, they can't convince people to let them approach because they're accompanied by colonial soldiers who everyone is is concerned about. And um, and it's a mess. It's just it's a mess, and and so it's in that period of transition that they start to rely really heavily on local auxiliaries in in northwestern Tanzania in the the kingdom of Kiziba, which is the second set of studies. There's there are really explicit efforts to engage with um, with the the, the Omukama, um, the the king of that region, and try to sort of find a way to train and work with auxiliaries who have the imprimatur of royal authority. Um, and, and in Uganda at the same time, in Buganda and on the Sese Islands, there's an effort to try to kind of insinuate European research expeditions into existing missionary medicine um, to try to get people to trust them and to work with them and and so forth. So that political transition, I'm really glad you asked that, that political transition is a really important transition as well that parallels this broader transition within research and biomedicine. Now but again that's the sort of European perspective on how this would have looked. What we understand is happening within the, the interlacustrine kingdoms in Buganda and the Sesses, in Kiziba and and in the Haya kingdoms, and likewise um, on the lowlands of Lake Tanganyika um, is that um, some societies have been visited by a series of really significant disasters in the previous decade and a half. So cattle diseases came through and affected differentially different communities, but but generally devastated cattle and ruminant populations. Um, there were epidemics of, of smallpox. There were um, particularly bad year for locusts happened at about the same time, paralleling um, military incursion from these colonial authorities, right? So that by the time we get to 1900, 1901, we have um, uh, populations that have really experienced a significant amount of disruption, but are also um, sort of still working with within existing political systems and existing healing systems to, to survive and to to thrive and to prosper as best they can, um, and again into those communities, here comes sleeping sickness. So it was that it was really it was really a moment um, where a lot of things were
0: were changing. Yeah, definitely. So let's let's, let's dive in a little bit into your sure. your studies. Um, you start with the Sese Islands. Um, the, you know, tell us, you know, just a little bit about, you know, situate the Sese Islands. Mm -hmm. I I found it incredibly, one of the things that I found uh, very, very interesting is situating uh, these sort of, um, I guess you would call them kind of like marginal, they're not marginal, but in in thinking about the politics Mm -hmm. of of Buganda, you Mm -hmm. know, how they're like in the periphery of this sort of state of which we tend to know more mm-hmm. uh, and how to some extent, like you were saying that uh, that sort of internal politics played a little bit in, in, in how people from the islands themselves uh, mm-hmm. had, uh, you know, how you were saying those, those transitions and those ruptures between how they used to deal with uh, issues like disease and other uh, cases of misfortune. Um, so I guess, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the Sese Islands, its relationship to sort of the larger politics of the area mm-hmm. and how and you tell us that story of, of um, uh, strategies and ideas uh, sure, to make sure. sense of, of, of misfortune, uh, yeah. misfortune.
1: Yeah. So th- thank you. So this, the Sese are a really f- fascinating um, place, uh, this archipelago of 80 some islands that's in the North Western corner quadrant of Lake Victoria, um, and w- one of the things that's really interesting, and here I I draw on um, some wonderful ethnographic and anthropological research um, as well as as historical research. Um, the Sessais had been really central to the to the advent of the Ganda Empire um, and to the growth of the Ganda state. Because they had boat building and navigational expertise, so um, they were in a subordinate relationship with the with the Ganda state um, and and the sort of powerful and expansionist Gonda state, but were also really um, really a pivotal part of of that state's expansion across the lake and out into the area. Um, at the same time, um, you know the first the first sources that I read about this history were uh, missionary diaries, were, um, were accounts from, um, from scientists, particularly from Robert Koch. I sort of followed his journey on a, on a sleeping sickness expedition around Lake Victoria. And the Sesse's emerged as this focal point in Eastern Africa because mortality from sleeping sickness was perceived to be absolutely devastating there. Now, we know now from a variety of different research looking at mortality and looking at um, famine and crop failure that not all of the people who died likely died directly of the infection with the trypanosome parasite. They may have died of other things, but there was a sort of convergence of, of disease and death that, um, that, was, that was perceived by German and, and British actors to really fall on the essays with particular severity. So I was interested in um, as I as I sort of looked at the narrative of sleeping sickness control in Eastern Africa of understanding what was going on on the essays themselves, um, and um, and tried to situate the essays um, not looking out across from the mainland, you know, across the lake to this archipelago, but really sort of landing in place and thinking about what the what uh, this essay perspective and the perspective of kind of Gonda landholders who had presence on the seses and vice versa would have been about this, this dramatic change. Um, and one of the things that is also uh, durably important about the seses is that they are home to the shrines and um, they are connected to the the powers of the most powerful um, deity, Mukasa, who has a variety of different names in, in Great Lakes, um, in different Great Lakes societies, to this deity who is the, the god of the lake, but also um, a deity that is responsible to, for, um, for fertility, for health, um, widely invoked by a lot of different people at the time, um, as they went on journeys, as they sort of went about their lives. It was also, um, because it was such a powerful place Within um, the politics, the po- sort of political and um, and ritual power of the Ganda Empire, as well as um, the Ziba Kingdom um, in adjacent Kiziba, it was also a place where the missionaries were very active very early. So um, we have this documentation and a sense of of what the Sese's were culturally for people living around um, around Lake Victoria, but then also this this interesting documentary um base of missionary writings, travelers writings, sort of people collecting information that then you can read um strategically uh to understand what life was like at the time. So so the essays were also you're right um peripheral relative to what we usually think about with Buganda, but um absolutely central for understandings of sleeping sickness at
0: the time. Excellent. Um So tell us about those understandings, you know, what, um, what do people in the Sassy Islands think about this disease for what you could um, discern in the sources? How did they uh, seek to deal with it in this, um, what might have seemed like a new iteration? Did they see it as a new iteration Um,
1: of uh, of illness? Yeah. mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things that, um, one of the things that's really interesting about this, this sort of problem of, of thinking about how people understood what was happening to them when they were getting sick is, um, is a problem of sources and language and, um, and, and what things are called, what you name things. And so one of the things that um, uh, we can understand from the from the historical sources is that this sort of sleeping death was something relatively new in this place at this time, and and in part that's because we see that it is um, characterized as being related to um, a deity that brought illness into into populations, Kalmuli, um, mm-hmm. who a lot of people will translate as the god of plague. So it's a god of plague, um, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, but eventually came to call, um, this sort of sleeping, nodding death Mongota. And that is derived from a, a Ganda word that, um, that describes that glosses sleepiness or nodding or think or falling asleep. And, um, and one of the things that I, I found about what people were doing was, um, was that they were doing something. I mean, so at a, at a very basic level, I should say that the, the way that we have generally talked about sleeping sickness doesn't really address um, any kind of responses among the people who were affected, other than maybe um, that those deaths were reported to political authorities, um, but we don't really talk about what they did. And, and one of the things that that I my research found, that I found in the book, was that um, people undertook... Uh, measures to separate the sick from the well that had been used in past experiences of diseases that they saw as spreading, of illnesses that they saw as spreading. So um, so the sick for who who were sort of seen to have this kind of sleepy affliction, um, which people recognized to be serious and, and potentially deadly, um, they were set apart from family homes, um, ultimately settled together so that family members could care for the sick but also um, sort of distance that affliction from their own home and hearth. Um, and so that was one of the first things that, that people did to kind of make sense of, of what was going on. Um, one of the other things that happens um, is, uh, is a fair amount of mobility and different kinds of, of treatment seeking and, and therapeutic efforts. And one of the things that's important about the Sese Islands, again, with the the, the with Mukasa Shrine there as well as uh, a well-established Catholic mission um, and then a Protestant Anglican mission there is that there, there are really diverse therapeutic resources for people to avail themselves of. So there is on the one hand, the, the really um, significant ritual resource of the, of the shrine um, and of the mediums at Mukaso shrine, but then also the Catholic mission and the white father's mission at Bumangi where um, the white father's, where the missionaries of Africa were uh, really interested in um, dispensing various and sundry medicines to people when they could. Um, They had a hospice where they would, Uh, where they would feed people. Now they're interested in saving souls and they're interested in conversions, but they're not really as, as they don't want deathbed conversions. They don't want emergency conversions, right? (laughs) They want them to be genuine um, and sort of durable. So there's a relationship with the community there, um, but also a resource for people as they, as they fell sick. So we do see um, some increasing use of, or, or sort of, increasing prevalence of the use of these missionary resources. They count the number of sick. They're tallying the people who are coming into the hospice and recognizing that they can't really do anything for people and they can't save them, but they can maybe make sure they have um, the food that they need if their families have already died, you know, and, and so mm-hmm. forth. The Anglican um, mission was evacuated from the islands I th- in 1905, I believe. And so the Anglican mission becomes... Is not a resource for people at, thereafter, and they had not been as interested in um, in general treatment of various and sundry maladies. They were interested in kind of connecting with women around the care of their children, um, but that was a bit of a different dynamic. So, at a baseline, what happens on the Sese Islands is that is that people start to to very assertively seek therapies, seek treatment, seek amelioration of this of this disease, and also deal with this concatenation of illness and death that is sort of, um, spreading throughout the communities on the Sese islands, because the Sessays are a place where there are, there's Sese habitat along the, the lakeshore that gets sort of increases over time. Um, and people are, are being bitten by the flies as they go to and from the lake, um, and are around on the islands, as well as if they travel, um, on the lake into different lake lakeshore environments. So the disease is spreading. Um, and, and that's, that's one of the things that happens. Now, another layer to this, because it's sort of layer upon layer upon layer. Amidst this, this crisis um, arrives Robert Koch and this delegation of German researchers. And they are there explicitly because a lot of people are dying there and they want to do research on trypanosomiasis. Right? And they want to find, Koch especially, really wants to find a, a drug therapy that can be broadly used for trypanosomiasis. He had been chasing therapies um, and therapeutic research since his work on uh, on a treatment for tuberculosis in the 1880s, 1890s. So, um, so he is there and and brings this well-provisioned um, Expedition into the midst of this crisis to to do research on sick people um, at this camp at Bugala.
0: And and if I remember correctly, the, mm-hmm. he, you you uh, very clearly detail how, to some extent, it, it, the the notion of layers is really interesting mm-hmm. because there's this notion that he he's not he understands that he's not going to apply this on a blank slate. You know, he Mm -hmm. tries to make uh, use and to the extent that he's successful or not, uh, at least in the layout of his um, his, uh, attempts, he makes very successful use of existing knowledge Mm -hmm. and existing ideas. So uh, tell us a little bit about how uh, he achieved that, or what is it that he made use that
1: uh, that mm-hmm. worked
0: for him, at least in the long term, in the short term.
1: In the short term, yeah, yeah, because it was it, it. That's the other thing about this: it was relatively it was relatively short in the grand scheme of things. He was there for um for less than a year. So um so Koch is a very entrepreneurial guy. Um he's uh, he's famous late in life. He's gotten money from the German government to do this expedition, and he's negotiated with the British to do that research on the Sessay Islands, but um. But he, he's also experienced enough to know that you, you need resources and you need, um, you need connections, I think you could, you could say. And so he situates himself in the abandoned buildings of the Anglican mission, mm-hmm. which is not an accident at all. The, the buildings are um, – the, the church and one of the mission buildings are um, – are more secure places for him to keep all of his expensive technical microbiolo- microbiological apparatus. Um, he's within a uh, walking distance, although a bit of a long walk from the white father's um, Francophone Catholic mission uh, sort of along the, the ridge of the Island. So um, they, they have Christmas dinners together. <laughs> they know each other. Um, two of his um, scientists are housed with the white father's, and he and other and one other one stay at the at the Bugala the abandoned Bugala mission, um, which had been an Anglican mission. And so he 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 sort of weaves himself and weaves his expedition directly into that extant those extant relationships with other mm-hmm. with other European actors, um, and and really solicits the help of the missionaries to kind of convince people to come in for these experimental treatments. And one of the things that is, is really important to, to emphasize here is that all of the treatments that are being offered at this time are experimental therapies. Um, the main drug that Koch was working with and that other researchers had had worked with at different times within the preceding few years is a drug that's derived from arsenic, um, known as Atoxil. Um, and it has impact on the optic nerve and can cause both temporary and permanent blindness as well as sort of pain and injection at the sites where it was injected. The drug is primarily injected um, at this time. And so Call um, is trying to develop an experimental therapeutic protocol, right, a drug protocol mm-hmm. with a drug that um, some of his colleagues have said is not going to work. And actually has side effects that are detrimental enough that really we shouldn't be using it, even though it was the drug that a lot of others were using. So sort of the challenge for the expedition is to get enough people who are sick with sleeping sickness into their camp space at Bogala, which means they are given a number, their symptoms are assessed, they're kind of brought into this um, laboratory discipline. And then to give them doses of this experimental drug, and then follow them to see what happens. So he needs people to be close by and he needs to be able to keep track of them. And he needs to, um, and he, and he needs to be able to assess the, the impact over time of using this drug. So being situated in space and having people who are sort of attached to his camp and to the missions is really of paramount importance. Um, and that's this very strategic decision to situate um, the expedition in this particular place.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Um. So, how does this uh work that he ends up doing in the seses ends up uh, informing uh, other the other sites that you mm-hmm. investigating? Yeah. You know, you start with the, the Kiziba and mm-hmm. then with um, um, the Haya uh, yeah. area.
1: Um. So one of the connections between the seses and Kiziba is actually a very long standing. Um, Uh, political connection between the ritual power that's situated on the Sese islands at Mokasa shrine and the, the, the Royal, um, Royal authority in Kiziba. And so we know that there has been connection between Kiziba and the Sese islands, um, people moving back and forth, um, across the lake for some time, but also that sort of as the Ganda state takes, uh, a greater and more powerful role regionally that Kaziba is a tributary state sort of similarly to the way that the Sese's are. So, um, but we know that there are people, fishermen from Kazeba, from coastal areas of Kaziba that have been going to the Sese's and have been marketing their, their wares around the lake. Um, and so Koch identifies a, a set of people who are living in a fishing camp on the Sese islands who are from Kazeba. And because Kaziba is in German East Africa, not in British Uganda, Um, This is something that's very important for his work as well, because one of the things the expedition that he's on is supposed to be doing is addressing the spread of sleeping sickness southward from Buganda and Busoga along the, the Lake Victoria lakeshore into German territories. So again, this kind of anxiety about the spread of the disease. And so um, Koch sends one of his research assistants, a a German uh, colonial military officer or colonial medical officer, rather, who had been seconded to the expedition. A man named Robert Kudika. He sends him to Kiziba to do some investigation about whether the disease is really solidly established there, and to um, to assess what kinds of prevention measures might be possible. And one of the things that's important about the sort of legacies of Koch's research. On the one hand, that he doesn't ever get the therapy that he wants. Atoxal is a bust and it mm-hmm. it blinds people and it's 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 very harmful. Um, but the the idea of the camp and the isolation camp um, is something that becomes durably important and is incorporated into German strategies as well as um, becomes a part of the British strategies. Now, the idea of an isolation camp, of a of a lazaretto, uh, a quarantine station, is a very, very old one historically. But deploying those kinds of of stations deliberately to try to capture and to um, and to contain and to understand um, sleeping sickness was something that was a, a kind of process in development at the time um and so that's one of the the repercussions for Kochse's work is this idea of a camp where you could bring people through the camp diagnose them with sleeping sickness um give them injections of atoxyl as a prophylaxis right as a preventative for mm-hmm. the spread of further disease in the idea that if you gave people a little bit of atoxyl it would it would reduce the parasite load in their bloodstream again even with its harmful side effects, this is what what they were willing to do, um, and so it's in that way that then Kiziba becomes the net, one of these outposts within the German sleeping sickness campaign after Koch's departure. So there is one at at um, at uh, Kigarama in um, in northwestern Tanzania, one at Kishanje, um, also in Kiziba, and then another near Shirati on the eastern shore of the lake. And then another station um, that's not really a camp, but that is sort of functions at the at the near the modern town of Mwanza, but um, but Kigalama is the one that really um, becomes the kind of flagship research site in eastern Africa in 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 excuse me in northeast northwestern Tanzania for German for the German campaign. Uh, So that's how they get to Kiziba and to focus on Kiziba um, is through these connections that are sort of born of epidemiological observation, but also related to historic mobilities. Um, But it's right on the border with with British Uganda. And so if we think about borders being really important for colonial states less important to the people who are living within them, right? But mm-hmm. <laughs> being really important to colonial states, you know, that border location is is really front and center for the Germans in trying to contain the spread of the disease and to understand the nature of the spread of the disease. But again, things do not go as they plan.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting that in, in a way, by po- pinpointing the, um, like you said, the continuities between mm-hmm. um, these different communities, but Also the differences for instance in in comparing sese to um to Kiziba like uh you uh, identify these uh individuals the gland feelers mm-hmm. uh, noted down. you know it's like which again points to the idea that while people in the sese uh, for multiple reasons that you have already detailed might have been initially more willing to voluntarily go to these camps. That eventually was not necessarily the case in, mm-hmm. in Kiziba, you know, that they needed to be more uh, coerced or mm. like encouraged <laughs> <you> know, to,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: to go to these camps. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more of that, the role that um, uh, that these landfillers had to play in convincing people to seek treatment or subject subject themselves to treatment.
1: Sure, sure. Um, And and one of the things that you've identified as an important baseline to to think about when we think about public health campaigns, people avail themselves of different treatments and different strategies at different times for a variety of different reasons. And so one of the things that I was grappling with in this research was that um, you saw people coming, coming in, for a variety of different reasons, but then you also saw them leaving. Okay. So, um, so, so people come and they go and, um, and understanding how they come and they go is a really, is a really interesting challenge. So I was looking at the statistics and the records of the German sleeping sickness campaign, um, which are held in, um, in archives in Berlin. And I could see that there were people who were listed as, as coming in and the doctors would record their age and their provenance and information about them. And then you would have a listing of the people that died and what they died of. And then there were other people who were, who were listed as anderweitig, which means otherwise elsewhere. (laughs) And I thought, well, who was going elsewhere and how did they do that? Isn't this supposed to be a closed system? And, um, And so one of the things that was really crucially important for the the camp at Kigrama early on was the relationship that German doctors developed and sort of tried to cultivate with the Mukama at the time who had come to the throne in 1903, whose name was Mutangarwa. And Mutangarwa had already, um, as I discuss in another chapter of the book, had already had a relationship around health and around disease surveillance With regard to um, bubonic plague in the area, and had seen how the the colonial interest in disease surveillance could be um, could be used to one's advantage politically, I think within internal Ziba politics. And so, um, so he is, and this is one of the ways that he he ascends to the throne in 1903. So Kudika, who who have like he has some Swahili. Um, but no, but no, uh, no Olahaya, no, no Ziba, um, is, is working from Kigarama where he chooses the site based on the fact that there are a lot of sick people there and, um, and he can't get anyone to stay in place for him to figure out who is ill unless they are so gravely ill that they can't get away. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so one of the things that he decides to do is to work with, uh, sort of solicit Mutangarwa for a cohort of people who could, ha- who could assist with those local considerations, who would know the landscape, would know where people were located, could communicate directly with people, and then could bring people from their homes when they were sick or with signs of sleep- of sleeping sickness, bring them to the Kigarama camp for investigation and diagnosis. And ideally, keep them there for injections with Atoxel, until they were then released or left on their own. And this is this cohort of gland feelers. And gland feelers is a direct translation from the German. Mm -hmm. They were called gland feelers because Mm -hmm. one of the manifestations of sleeping sickness was perceived to be, uh, these enlarged cervical lymph glands on the back of the neck, which were called winter bottom sign.
0: Uh
1: So, um, so trains these cohort of, of, uh, of young men, um, Probably in their late teens, uh, early twenties, to go and to search for sleeping sickness and to note the names of the sick, to report about the sick, and then to bring the sick back, usually with the help of of, of Askari or of other um, Ziba political officials. So it's it's this um, it's this effort that really deploys colonial those sort of trappings of colonial power they're likely given some clothing or some sort of goods that signify their attachment to the sleeping sickness camp but they're also um, uh, I would argue really visible as a cohort of an age set that is attached to the royal palace so they are also men of the king as much as they are people associated with the camp and, um, and so even though they're young, they're young men. And I, I've, I've said you know before that usually when you're looking at public health campaigns and you're trying to train people to go and to go out into communities and to do the work, you're sending people who are really neutral, right? Older women, um, you know, the modern polio campaign in part deploys young girls to go and, and to do some of that work because you don't want anybody who's gonna cause any trouble when they're going into someone's house. Or to be in any way sort of alarming to the people who you want to talk to, and I, I have said, and I, I say this to my students sometimes, like a cohort of college age guys is, is <laughs> not your first choice, right? Of mm-hmm. of people who are going to lead neutrally into these spaces, but these are these are young men who have been trained in statecraft at the palace, and they are they're really firmly attached as a moteco as an age set group. Um, I, I would argue they're really firmly attached to the throne. And they are the ones who go out and do this work of surveillance and of and of kind of collection of people who then are supposed to come to the Kigarama camp for diagnosis, sort of shaping this prevention campaign as well as greater knowledge of the extent of the disease in place. Um, but they're really complicated figures, it's clear that there are counter negotiations going on, you know, and that sometimes people are passed over or that um, they're seen as not deploying that power of surveillance and of of coercion um, neutrally. Right. They're valued initially as being people who are really steeped in local knowledge. And, you know, whenever colonial officials are talking about local knowledge, it's, it should be a red flag, but they're, they're steeped in that local environment and they're valued for that. And then over time, they're the, the extent to which they, these men are intertwined with this community becomes, uh, becomes a detriment. You know, they know too much They're too susceptible to to counter arguments, to counter payments, to to other ways of doing things that would also, you know, speak to the desire of a family member to stay in their own home when they were sick, or to to not be separated from loved ones, you know, to get these painful injections at this camp that was increasingly viewed with skepticism over time. So... um, Mm -hmm. So they're really interesting figures, but very complicated figures in this process of public health surveillance
0: yeah definitely they it sounded like a um, like a, like a situation that speaks precisely to to like you said the difficulties uh of of the very specific political setting in which mm-hmm. you're trying to operate and and which may or may not encourage people to avail themselves to certain treatments mm-hmm. um, so, your last case, the southern uh, imbo in, mm. in among the Haya, uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, what these last case uh, added uh, to this uh, rich history of, sure. of uh, sleeping sickness.
1: Yeah, the so the 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 book traces. Um, Roughly the the sort of transitions in the German colonial anti-sleeping sickness campaign in Eastern Africa. And German East Africa at the time encompassed modern um, mainland Tanzania, as well as Rwanda, modern Rwanda and modern Burundi. And so, um, so the area in Lake Tanganyika is peripheral to the, the Rundi state um, and, the, um, and the Rundi monarchy, um, but is also really uh, people who are living on these lowlands along Lake Tanganyika are also um, connected across the lake with the, um, with the eastern fringes of what was by that time the Belgian Congo. Um, and, and this is where the, the sort of cross-lake mobility that operates – Prior to and around um, and through colonial borders and state rule is is something that's really important. So it's connections across the lake east west, with the the lowland towns and trading centers. Um, between modern-day Ujiji and modern-day Bujumbura that are the focus of that last case study. And that's in part because that area is the is is understood by the German government as this hot spot um, and uh, and a major concern um, with regard to the the sort of eastern periphery of of the um, of the German East African state. Um, what we what we learn, there is, I think, something slightly different than the other two case studies because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of new information being assimilated and integrated by everybody involved at the Sese mm-hmm. Islands and in Kaziba. Um, tactics are changing, policies are changing, uh, you know, approaches to, to therapies and healing are changing. Um, and with the, with the IMBO campaign, which is simultaneous to the work at Lake Victoria, but sort of is, is elaborated slightly differently, um, we see the, the system of camps being put into place from the very beginning. Right. Mm-hmm. So, one of the things that characterizes the campaign on Lake Tanganyika is uh, is a chain of sleeping sickness camps and outstations and treatment centers that are that are spaced roughly evenly along what is now the the Burundian coast of Lake Tanganyika, but also extend extended further southward um, into into what is now um, Tanzania um, between. Uh, UGGN points south on the lake. So these these treatment stages are really meant to be catchment um, catchment camps where a German colonial officer will sort of establish themselves, uh, try to surveil the area around them and the population around them, bring people into this atoxal regimen, but also, importantly, systematically deforest the lakeshore to try to destroy Tzitzit habitat. And so it becomes a space of of significant labor requisitioning. Mm -hmm. Whereas whereas fly clearance, fly habitat clearance was really not taken on board as a broad policy in um, in Northeastern Tanzania, in Kiziba, it's it's one of the keystones of the Lake Tanganyika campaign. And so so this case shows us how uh, understandings about disease sort of fit into approaches to environments and spaces. And um, and the kind of conflicts that arise between um, between the people living in the Imbo, sort of Rundi and um, and Bwari, Congolese and other populations who are circulating back and forth a- across the lake very vigorously, um, despite German intentions to get them to stop. Um, but looking at sort of looks and tries to understand how those populations, um, which had their own distinctive cultural milieu interacted with these new impositions from um, from the German state to try to get them to do the work of clearing work as well as um, sort of stay attached to these camps and circulate through these camps for um, for atoxal injections. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, having, you know, you mentioned earlier, for instance, that uh, that um, sleeping sickness continues. You know, it continues to be mm-hmm. an issue and a problem. Having written this uh, rich history of of these early attempts to address it from the on the part of colonial authorities, um, what have you concluded in terms of what these tell us uh, about how those uh, attempts to deal with it have uh, evolved, progressed? Where are we today in in those attempts, and and more generally, what what do you think we can learn uh, from 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 this history?
1: That's a that's a great question. Um, one of the things that is, I think, important but also complex is that um, some of the tactics that are developed to control a, a vector borne disease like like sleeping sickness, um, like malaria that um, that we have that are oriented around um, preventing mosquito bites or oriented around fly habitats and so forth, um, some of those tactics that are broadly environmental in their approach are still with us today. and But they have their origins in um, in historical ideas about people and environments and ways that things can be controlled, some of which are early ecological envi- arguments, but but others of which are just about sort of managing environments so that people can live in them. And I see... I see some continuities between, um, between those sort of earlier moments and desires to, to manage disease and the way that things are playing out um, in the present day. So sleeping sickness is still a disease that is fatal if left untreated. Um, great strides have been made in the last decade or so um, for drug treatments for this disease, but it is still a disease that's difficult to diagnose Um, difficult to treat. Most of the treatments have significant side effects, although that's changing a little bit now. But it was also a disease for which there was very little interest in developing drug therapies for most of the 20th century. Um, One of the main drugs in use um, in the 20th century um, had such significant side effects that it was really really dicey when to use it and how to use it because it could kill you. Um, and that's directly related to who was getting sick, which is to say black African people were getting sick and there was no market for a drug to treat them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I think we still see um, that, uh, and so this sort of idea of people's lives being valued in different ways by drug markets, by development of, of research and science, that's one of the things that, that I think is a really important lesson, to derive from looking at the history of sleeping sickness is that the, um, that there are diseases that have been known, that are known to be deadly, that are known to be a significant um, uh, cause of mortality and, and of sickness um, that have significant economic impacts. Um, and they haven't been prioritized because of the people that are getting sick with them. And that's, that's the sort of the, my new project uh, is about the neglect the so-called neglected tropical diseases of which sleeping sickness is one, um, and and ideas about their eradication and elimination. Uh, so so that's one piece of it. Um, I think the other thing that we we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about historical disease dynamics. and one of the things that was really an animating idea for me with this book was to to think about how public health interventions, are situated. And, and I think it's important to step away from the passive voice, actually, there. So I'll, I'll amend that a little bit to think about how, how people situate public health interventions in particular places and in particular community, communities and, and what they expect will happen next. And this has to do with colonial public health, certainly, but also with national public health programs in the present day. And this sort of tension between what, what's happening in a local community and, and how that operates and, and how it impacts your outcomes. Um, one of the things that became abundantly clear in the course of looking at sleeping sickness research and sleeping sickness prevention and how people interacted with it was that the, the specific circumstances and, and immediate histories And people's experiences um, prior to the advent of this particular form of disease, but also just in place with a a given space or, or site, were hugely influential in determining the fortunes of that place. And so I think one of the takeaways for me when we think about how public health functions is to really encourage uh, those who are designing public inter- health interventions to think about the politics of where things are located, who are your who are your trusted community. Uh, partners. Um, what are their interests? How do they diverge? Um, you know, what are the reference points for a target population when somebody from outside or someone from an elite background or someone um, with a particular uh, message comes in and asks them to change their behavior in a particular way, right? And we know that these that these histories and these reference points are important for how uh, a, an individual or a family or a, or a whole community engages with a public health intervention. But that was one of the things that I really wanted to, to point up is that we can see these things playing out very clearly in diverse contexts historically in Eastern Africa, but it should be uh, information that gives us pause when we think about any kind of a community public health intervention, any sort of appeal that you are making that happens within uh, a, a sort of living political and social space. So um, so that's one of the other things that I think um, is an important takeaway. Um, um, absolutely. Yeah.
0: And I think... Uh timely one too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you mentioned that your current project, um, just to, you know, start to yeah. um, wrap up a little bit, tell yeah. us a little bit about this project that you're working on right now, or, you know, any projects that you're yeah,
1: working yeah, sure, on right now. Sure. So, um, so I, the, the project on the history of sleeping sickness um, in the early 20th century was um, Led me to to a new project that I'm that I'm currently developing um, on the history of the neglected tropical diseases, and and I sort of put that in quotation marks because the category of the neglected tropical disease or the NTD is a really powerful category in modern global health practice. So it's both a category that has very particular operative meanings um, around disease eradication. They're they're incorporated into the the sustainable development goals and have been a a point of of advocacy and action for the last decade or so. But they're also a really interesting imaginative category. Um, So what does it mean for a disease to be neglected? Neglected by whom? Why? (laughs) In what way? I mean, certainly the, the cohort of diseases, which range from um, which range from trypanosomiasis, from sleeping sickness, which has been a neglected tropical disease for 40 years, um, or a neglected disease for 40 years, um, ranging from from very well-known illnesses um, like this to... Um, to loiasis, African eyeworm, um, snake bite envenomation is a new entry in this category. So I'm working on the history of, of the, these neglected tropical diseases, kind of thinking about the colonial legacies of a tropical disease, but also um, what is it that catalyzes in the 1970s? Um, interest on the part of international health organizations like the WHO, but also philanthropic organizations, um, the American Rockefeller Foundation um, and others, to start to pour pour money and and to advocate very strenuously for treatment of parasitic and, and neglected illnesses, um, and that story, which is a post-colonial story, it's a story about uh, sort of geopolitics in the 1970s and 80s, but that has repercussions for the way that these NTD programs are going on in the present day, um, is is what I'm, what I'm currently spending a lot of time with. Um, but one of the things that's also really interesting is that, you know, s- spending so much time thinking about parasitic diseases in the history of health, you you know, in the earlier 20th century, I could get my, I could get my mind around most of what the researchers were up to and what they understood was happening. But to move into modern molecular biology is an entirely different task. So one of the things that's really interesting about this work is, is, and then I'm realizing is very important to communicate about this project is sort of what is it that is changing in knowledge about immunology and about um, parasite resistance and so forth. And so, Another thing that I'm working on in parallel to the to the book research um, and to an article uh, and some other collaborations is um, I'll be doing training in parasitology and epidemiology and public health starting in the two thousand in 2021 as a, as a New Directions Fellow and Andrew W. Mellon Foundation New Directions Fellow. So I'll be going back to school to learn how to, to deal with this uh, in, in a more in a, in a better translational capacity as a historian who can also speak to scientists. So... I have a a really full, a plate that is like full of parasitic diseases, (laughs) which nobody else would probably like, but I'm very excited about. Um, And so so that's the new project, is is sort of uses sleeping sickness as a springboard to think about the politics of of disease in the present day. And and I've also got um, some collaborations with colleagues at Pitt around how we understand health data about the neglected diseases to sort of operate and how it might engage with and um, be informative of modern health interventions. And so sort of trying to take this broad sense of all of these big changes in the 20th century in history, um, both in the history of health, but in the history of of political change and kind of bring them into dialogue with the modern research and public health and science and and global health practice. Um, So that's, that's the next I don't know, well, probably decade of my life.
0: <laughs> well, you know, uh, we very much look forward to talking <laughs> to you about that next project. Uh, if it's in five or 10 or whatever many years, <laughs> I'm sure uh, we were all, me and all our listeners will be more than excited um, to hear about it. Uh, well, thank you very much uh, for um, talking to us today. Uh, I very much look forward to hearing more about your work and um, I'll let you go now.
1: Thank you so much. much. It (laughs) was really a pleasure. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.